Welcome to the Traveling Image Makers Podcast, your source of inspiration about travel photography. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we bring you on a tour around the world with our guests. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever considered going on a photography workshop? And if you would consider it, what kind of experience would you expect to get out of it? What qualities do you think a good workshop instructor should have? And what things he should be looking out for in the interest of his attendees? We discussed this topic and many others with my guest for this episode of the Traveling Image Makers podcast, renowned photography instructor and traveler Shiv Verma. Let me tell you, if you ever decide to go on a photography workshop, there is probably none other who cares so much for his guests than Shiv and who is so attentive to detail, so you can't really go wrong with him. Of course, we didn't just talk about workshops, we also talked about countries that we visited or would like to visit, and we have some interesting tips to share about what to pack and how to pack for your photography trips to get that peace of mind that is so important when traveling. So if you really want to get the best out of your next photography trip, I suggest that you listen to my interview with Shiv Verma. Remember, you can find all the show notes and all the links for this episode at ttim.photo slash 17. So I hope you will appreciate this interview. And until next time, all the best and take care. Hello, Shiv. Thanks for being our guest today and a very warm welcome to you. So what's new with Shiv Verma? Well, hello, Hugo, and uh, thank you very much for you know inviting me to your podcast. Uh, before I tell you how things are going over here, I'd just like to congratulate you on uh, you know setting up uh, the travel podcast, which is, I think, a very interesting, uh, good opportunity for people to learn uh, from others and also to learn from you. So thank you very much for doing this. Oh, you're, you're welcome. Far, That's very kind of you. Yeah. As far as how are things going, I'm actually getting very tired of the amount of snow that we are having, uh-huh. even though it gives us some good opportunities to do some fairly interesting snow photography. But when it is continuous for days and days and days, it gets uh, very boring. So we're now in the fourth or fifth day of snow and it's uh, still snowing outside. So just to give people a little bit of introduction, uh, can you tell us a bit about uh, uh, who is Shiv Verma and and where are you right now that is getting so much snow? Okay, so I'm actually um, at home in uh, Rentham, Massachusetts. So just from a reference point of view, we are slightly north of the Rhode Island border in, in Massachusetts on the southern side. And uh, we're fairly close to, uh, you know, the the shore area that is called Cape Cod. And I'm actually halfway equidistant between Boston, which is the capital, and Providence, which is the capital of Rhode Island. Um, more importantly, um, even though it was a disappointing year from a football point of view, I live very close to Gillette Stadium. Uh, that's where the Patriots play their football games. So in reference to where I'm located and where it is snowing, that's where it is. Okay. 
yeah. just a little bit, as you said, to introduce myself. I have um, been in the world of technology for all my life. I started with IBM and then with Prime and Computer Vision. Um, got tired of that and, uh, you know, finally decided to retire early and uh, take photography uh, seriously. I've actually been photographing since I was in high school, uh, but not on a professional basis. Uh, but since 2008, I decided to make it my profession, and I don't regret it one bit. It's been absolutely fantastic uh, being able to explore the country, being able to explore parts of the world, uh, I can't say I'm like some of your other podcast um, guests who have been to, you know, 115 countries, but uh, I've been to quite a few, but clearly not as many as, as some people have. But, uh, you know, the exploration continues, and that's what I'm doing. So you're in your eighth year of uh, professional photography, and I can say, uh, looking at your website and the list of your activities and clients, uh, you have accumulated quite a number of successes and customers and so on so congratulations it's uh, thank you it's thank probably you. not easy in this uh, in this world to to break through in professional photography travel photography and so on do you have any tips or suggestions who, for people who would like to to do the same to follow in your footsteps yeah, I, I think, uh, Ugo, you know, you, you're, uh, you're making a very good point. And a lot of people uh, are fearful of becoming professional photographers because uh, they believe that, uh, you know, there is so much in the market that for them to be successful, um, the road is too much of an uphill road. But I think if you use a concept which is, all right, I'm going to do photography, but maybe I break it up into various components. And you may say it's as diversification, but in reality, you're not diversifying yourself from photography. You're still a photographer. But, you know, if you're interested in doing people and portrait photography, great. But extend it then to do street photography. If you are a landscape photographer, and you love shooting landscapes and you want to be professional, then maybe you should look at doing workshops and taking people out and educating them. Conversely, if you like shooting still life, if you start start doing, you know, studio type work, then maybe it's time to look at getting a few corporate clients and shooting their product line. Uh, so th there is a lot of opportunity if you really want to extend yourself beyond just one thing. Um, you know, photographers will say diversification is very important, and, and I agree. But where do you diversify? You need to look at those areas which you're already good at or, or are getting good at and extend into the same realm for what I call the commercial side, which will bring you incremental income than just saying, you know, I want to do portraits and portraits alone. Yeah, so since we are talking mostly about travel photography in this show, uh, do you think what you say, uh, if I interpret that correctly, is that if you are traveling for whatever reason and you carry your camera with you and you love uh, taking photos of landscapes and cities and people, then try to find uh, commercial aspects, trying to find uh, locations, trying to find uh, subjects that would be useful from a commercial point of view that you could find customers for. 
Absolutely, absolutely. You're you're absolutely correct. And you know, there, there used to be a time when travel photography was was a very key aspect of stock photos. You know, creating a good stock portfolio. I mean, today stock photography is not being treated or being viewed as being a lucrative business. But still, I mean, there is still a good opportunity for for you know building up a portfolio of very interesting locations, travel thing. And, you know, whether it be travel agents, tour agents, hotels, they're all looking for uh, images that they can use, they can buy from you and use on their own websites, on their own marketing material, brochures, etc. So, yes, absolutely, there is opportunity. And, and as you said, if you are traveling, if you like to travel and you're a travel photographer, use that as an opportunity to maximize other aspects of your business. When you travel to a location, and this is whether it is from a commercial point of view of your or your own personal preference, uh, do you like to shoot more landscape, architecture, people, culture, food? What are the aspects of a foreign country and uh, and, and culture that uh, inspire you most? Well, it it really uh, you know. I hate to use the word it depends, but I'm going to say it. It really depends on where you go. So as an example, I do a lot of workshops in Iceland. And as far as Iceland is concerned, there are two aspects. is fundamentally landscape photography and to some extent a lot of nighttime photography. However, again, as I say, depends. If you go to Iceland in the summer, you also have an opportunity for a lot of wildlife photography, particularly birds. Because the migration, the birds come to Iceland to uh, to build their nests, to actually stay there for the summer before they migrate out. So there is that opportunity. So both time and location dependent is is the factor that I use as to what I'm going to be photographing. So this year, I'm not potentially doing a summer workshop in Iceland. I'm going to be doing a late fall workshop in September. And so that's going to be purely concentrated on um, landscapes. However, September is the beginning of the Aurora Borealis season. So yes, there will be some night opportunities also. So now you've got a dual aspect. It's night photography and landscape photography. If I go to when I do my workshops in uh, in Africa, this year we're doing Botswana and South Africa, and that will purely be for wildlife. But there is also some opportunity for some local tribes, some local people to do a little bit of people photography. But when I do the Ethiopia workshop, it's purely going to be cultural people. So it really depends on where and when uh, you go to a location that you have the various you know, aspects that you want to capture. And it, it depends you know, on what it is that the country or that location has to offer you. And you want to maximize that. So you mentioned your workshops. Can you tell us a bit more about how your tours are organized? Do you have a set number of locations that you visit? You do more of an exploration depending on the circumstances. Well, what can people expect from going on a workshop with you? Okay, so two things. I typically don't do a workshop where I take people unless I have been there and, and explored it. And usually that is replicating to some extent what I would do if I was to take people. 
So if I'm going to do, as an example, this year, we did a, a scouting trip, me and my wife, who's also a very good photographer, we did a scouting trip to, to check out the Bistai Badlands in New Mexico in the hope that we can now add that to our landscape workshop that we do in the late November, December timeframe, uh, typically involving White Sands, uh, Carlsbad Caverns, and now we, we're going to include Bistai Badlands. But I would never have included Bistai Badlands unless I have already been there, photographed it, walked the location, made sure that I understand what it has, it has to offer, what are the conditions of the light going to be like, what are the conditions of the, you know, whether it be hiking or it be traveling by car, what do you see there, when do you see it, and what's the best opportunity. So that's the first thing that I like to do. Once that is done, my workshops basically entail, you know, bringing a group of people on average between six to 10, that's if I'm going to do it alone. If it becomes more than that, or if the demand is higher than that, then I definitely like to add a second workshop leader or what I call a, a you know, workshop uh, instructor to participate with me to accommodate the incremental number of people. Because clearly you want to have everybody feel that they're getting a good amount of attention, a good amount of education, and being able to maximize what they came there for. And typically, what do people come for? They come for a good opportunity for great images, to build a relationship with other people, the camaraderie, which is great, and to learn from each other. I think we all continue to learn every day. I mean, I don't think there is a photographer in this world who knows it all. Let, let so, me guess, you were a project manager in your previous job? Um, I was, well, I was the CIO of, of, of uh, computer vision, a big, uh, you know, computer company. But yes, I mean, it, our whole lives were based upon projects. Sorry, the way you talk about your, your workshop, the, the amount of planning and organization that goes into it and the language that you use reminds me a bit of project managers. And, and, and I mean that in the best possible way, because it means that you're very conscientious about uh, setting up everything so that your customers, your guests can have their, uh, the maximum satisfaction from your trips. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, and, and you know, um, Ugo, there's a lot of things that also have to be done in the background. And, you know, in one of my other podcasts, I think it was quite a while ago, uh, I talked about it. I said, you know, we have lots of photographers who are great photographers. And I don't say that they're doing anything wrong. They're doing, you know, excellent workshops. They're taking people to various locations. But I sometimes wonder, you know, how much planning really goes into it. Think, for example, if I take somebody to a location like Botswana or somebody in Ethiopia, what if that person falls sick? What do I do then? Right. I mean, who do I turn to? Where will I go? Who's the doctor that I need to call? Which is the nearest hospital? What kind of transportation needs to be arranged in a situation like that? Those are all very key planning elements that have to go into every workshop. Workshops to me are not just getting a group of people and putting them, you know, in a Jeep or a, or a travel vehicle and just carrying them around from one place to another. You have to plan for all the other aspects that could go wrong. 
Don't think about only aspects that are great, but always think about what else can go wrong and how do I prepare myself so that I'm not left in a situation where I don't know what to do. So you do the, the scouting, as you said, you do a lot of preparation, which is very mm -hmm. important. And um, so you come to know locations quite well. Uh, I would like to ask you, uh, just taking a couple of places that you know very well, like, I don't know, I could mention, just looking at the list of your future workshops, Yosemite or New England or, or whatever comes to your mind. Mm -hmm. Are there some spots there that uh, people just cannot miss? Or do you have any spots to suggest that uh, are maybe a bit off the beaten path and uh, uh, but you would recommend visiting maybe some little secret spots? So, well, I, I don't think there is anything known as a secret spot. There are lots of great, great opportunities. The, the one thing that I like to do is, of course, you know, whenever you go to a particular location, there are uh, not necessarily tripod hole shots, but there are shots that people want to get. I mean, for example, you want you go to, um, you know, Yosemite and, and, you know, if you come back without a good image of uh, El Capitan or without a good image of uh, Half Dome, uh, you know, the, the, then you haven't done the workshop. I mean, there's something wrong. So, so those are iconic locations or iconic images that everybody wants to get. But the important thing is, and, and, and the secret, if there was a secret, it's the secret as to when do you shoot it and what time do you shoot it and what kind of light do you shoot it in? Uh, you know, you can make you can make a good image or you can make a great image. And the difference really is the light and the way you locate yourself, the way you position yourself. So those those are the important elements. And in all of my workshops, I like to leave an opportunity to do a little bit of exploration above and beyond what we've already decided to photograph. Uh, there, there's, there's, you know, some some other areas that. Sometimes my, my workshop uh, participants notice something and they say, can we stop? Can we have a look at that? Let's see. And so we'll stop. We'll go look at it. And if it is a good photo opportunity, um, you know, yes, we'll shoot it. And for me, it becomes another location that I can add to the next workshop. So, as I said, there are no secrets. I mean, I have no mm -hmm. secrets. I like to show everybody whatever it is that I know of. And there are locations clearly that are, you know, unique and there are locations that everybody is aware of. But the unique locations are, you know, more from an opportunity point of view. India is a very good example. I mean, I do haven't done any this year uh, or last year, but the the wildlife workshops, you know, places like um, you know, going to India for cultural is great going to India for wildlife is exceptional. But you can make a mistake and go to a very good tiger location and not see any tigers. Mm -hmm. And the only reason you don't see any tigers is you didn't go at the right time. So, you know, that's important. And and for me, um, you know, India is a, is a place where I was born. Uh, I'm very familiar with it. Fortunately, I speak a few of the languages. So for me, it's very easy. But there are a lot of so-called secret areas, which are not really secret areas. They're just secret from a time point of view. Before we started recording this, we were chatting a little bit and you mentioned that you were thinking of doing a, 
a tour maybe in 2017 in Italy and uh, a place that you know because you've worked here for a, for a few years. Uh, can you spill a little bit of your uh, beans about uh, where would you like to go? Oh, for, for Italy, I mean, my first first priority, if I was to, and I'm, I'm hoping I can put this thing together and maybe maybe do it jointly with you or, uh, you know, I noticed on your website you have another co-leader that uh, actually lives in Milan. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I live close to Milan. Right. So, so you know, Milan is, is, is a city that I'm very, very familiar with, and, and I love it. I absolutely love Milan. I love the food. I love the people there. I love the locations. But <clears throat> Milan wouldn't be where I do my, my next uh, Italy workshop, if I, if I put it together. I'd really like to do the, the Amalfi Coast and include in it not just from a uh, landscape and people point of view, but to do the entire, uh, you know, sort of coastline starting with, you know, going to Maiori, Minori, Ravello, Positano, Capri, Anna Capri, Sorrento, all of that area, do that, and then come back to Napoli and spend a few days there to be able to do, uh, you know, Pompeii and Herculaneum just from a historical point of view, from an architecture point of view, because there is so much over there that one can see. And then, you know, even though Naples is a beautiful city from a people point of view, it's even more beautiful from an architectural point of view. So, you know, combine that more from from a, uh, I don't want to use the word street photography because that's not something I do that much, but but it is great. I enjoy it. But that's that's the ideal kind of workshop trip that I would like to do for about 10 to 12 days, even maybe two weeks. Yeah, there's such a, so many great things to see in that area and also in a, in a relatively compact area because, uh, I mean, people might not realize that, but going from a, uh, one of the architect, um, archaeological wonders of the world, like Pompeii, uh, going to the Amalfi Coast uh, is uh, probably less than 100 kilometers, if I remember well. It's, that is uh, correct, yes. Yeah, I've been there uh, years ago, but it's uh, and Naples sits in between, yeah. and Sorrento too, so it can be a very, um, not, not a very intense journey, uh, trip from a point of view of the transportation needed you don't have to do long uh, long drives uh, it's all in a limited area but uh, the locations are incredible and oh absolutely absolutely beautiful you jump on a, on a boat and you a fast boat to go to capri how much would it be uh, less than one no hour? don't don't do the fast boat do the slow boat it's uh, much more fun <laughs> Yeah, you see the whole coastline very well. <laughs> That's yeah, true. I mean, That's the, true. The, the the fast boat gets you there too quickly. I like to do the slow, you know, the the the, the regular ferry, and uh, then you then you go there and uh, you know sort of go to go to Capri and then take a bus and go to Anna Capri, which is you know from an elevation point of view, it just gives you a whole different view, looking down into the bay, looking down into the boats. It's just absolutely gorgeous. Yeah, getting into Capri by boat and seeing the, the island come closer and closer, it's, a, it's really a sight to behold. It's a, it's oh, it's, a, it's, it's an experience be, that you don't get anywhere else. Yeah. So, uh, and more do, important to go is the food. Yeah. The food. 
every place, all those locations are so interesting as far as what they the food that you can get is just fantastic. And this is the land where Limoncello was born. So <laughs> also the drinks. Yes. And you know, pe people talk about Limoncello, but when you're walking, walking in the streets in Amalfi, if you go up a little bit to the side to where they actually have the lemon trees, they will cut the, they will take the lemon and, and they will give you the lemon to eat. And it is a very delicious fruit. I mean, it's so sweet. It is so delicious that, uh, you know, people don't understand that limoncello is actually made from very, very delicious lemons that are good for eating also. Mm -hmm. True, true. So if you're doing this in 2017, then maybe we'll have a, a chance to meet. Let's hope Absolutely. that it, it I would love through. To. And, uh, and we'll, uh, in fact, maybe, maybe we, we talk some more about actually putting this trip together and... Uh, you know, doing it as a joint uh, as a joint workshop. Well, why not? I would love it. Let's um, let's talk about uh, something else a bit. Uh, I would like sure. to ask you some some practical tips for for people who want to to do travel photography, and especially mm -hmm. for people who want to travel uh, with the intention of taking photos. Uh, I mean, something about uh, what to bring, what kind of gear to bring, what you cannot forget putting in your bag whether it's photo gear or it's something else, how to handle the hassles of uh, current airport security, for instance, which is something that always uh, annoys people. Mm -hmm. or any other practical tips that you might have? Well, I'll, I'll tell you something. I, um, I was a DSLR shooter till about two years ago, and I switched to using mirrorless cameras and to me, that has been an absolute blessing because now the amount of gear I carry is less than half the weight. It's smaller, easier to pack. And once again, I'm going to use the word, it depends. Where are you going and what are you going to shoot? So if you're going on an African uh, photo safari, you are really going to have to take into consideration that you're sometimes going to be traveling in very small planes and they don't allow hard-sided suitcases. You have to have everything that is soft-sided. So your camera bag cannot be um, a rollerboard like, you know, a think tank rollerboard. So you have to put things into things that can be compressed and can be squeezed into small, you know, holes within the aircraft. So that's one thing tip that I would like to make sure people understand is know where you're going and what your transportation is going to let you carry. So not so much for airport security, but for internal flights. Mm -hmm. As far as airport security is concerned, you know, there's, there's, there's rules that are different by airport, even in the same country. Like some airlines or some um, security agents will let you carry uh, batteries in your carry-on luggage. Others will insist that no batteries can go in your carry-on luggage, so you must have your batteries in your personal luggage, oh. right? So make sure that you read what the regulations are before you start packing. And one of the things that I didn't realize that even though I don't consider it to be 
you know, potentially dangerous is that if you have the the Allen wrenches that you use to tighten the base plate of your camera or to tighten the tripod, you know, the L-shaped metal mm -hmm. Allen wrench. Yeah. Well, if you have it in your carry-on bag, it's 90% likely to be confiscated. So don't carry Allen wrenches in or anything that looks like potentially a tool. Don't carry it on your person or on your carry-on. Put it into your check luggage. Check luggage. Yeah. So, you know, lithium-ion batteries, another one. Big question about where should you pack them? I feel it's safest. Yes, they are heavy, but it's safest to put them into your carry-on bag so that you don't have your checked bag opened because they see batteries in there. Yeah, I was uh, just uh, this autumn in October, I was going through checking at the Split Airport in Croatia, and I yeah. immediately found out I had some uh, lithium-ion batteries in my checked luggage. Uh -huh. They made me open it and take them out. So later, a couple of weeks ago, I went to Norway, and I made sure all my lithium-ion batteries, of which I started to have quite a few because I had two cameras and yeah. uh, a video camera, each one mm -hmm. with different batteries. So I put all of them in my, in my carry-on, and it's, yeah, it's headed weight, but... Mm -hmm. you, you just should not risk uh, wasting time at checking because you're right. Those. So there, there is something else that I have now started doing, and I found it to be very helpful. Uh, you know, I carry my tripod and my ball head, and if I'm going for wildlife, I'll also carry a Wimberley sidekick, um, and I'll pack all that in my checked-in luggage. And what I was finding is that invariably, every time I had the Wimberley sidekick or the ball head separated, TSA would open my bag and they'd leave a note over there saying, you know, your bag was open for, for you know, security reasons. So I decided, I said, okay, they're going to open my bag anyway. That's not a problem, right? Hopefully you carry it, put a lock that is TSA approved so they can open it. But in some foreign countries, they might actually, you know, break the lock because they don't have the key, the TSA key to open the lock. What I do now is after I finish packing right on top, I put a white piece of paper and I attach my business card, which says, you know, Shiv Verma Photography, my phone number, etc. is all there. And on that white piece of paper, I write, this bag contains... One tripod, one ball head, one Wimbley sidekick, etc., etc., etc. And ever since I've started doing that, even though they open my bag, they read that and then they close the bag. They don't ruffle your clothes. They don't take things out and pack them in a stupid way. So I found that to be very uh, useful for for my trips. Now I just have that and I put it on top and say, you know, this is what my bag has. Hey, you put so they. they uh, on the inside or the outside of them? On the inside. Yeah. On the, because they're going to open your bag. You yeah. know, once it goes through that x-ray machine and they see these things, they're going to open your bag. So when they open your bag, what they do is usually all that heavy stuff is at the bottom. So they take your clothes out. Yeah. They put them aside. They check it. Then they just throw everything back in the suitcase. They don't pack it like you packed it. So what happens is you get a real messy bag when you arrive at your destination. Mm -hmm. 
But if you put this piece of paper with your business card on it and you write on it what all is in your bag, they don't bother to look anymore. You know, so they now they know that what they saw in the X-ray machine is one tripod, one ball head, one Wimbley, one this, one that, and then they are fine. Yeah, one thing that I'm doing, I'm not sure it's uh, actually effective, is I will use uh, some uh, uh, smaller bags, soft mm -hmm. ones, and also bags that you can see through, either clear pl clear plastic or with a network mesh. Yes. Uh, that, with a zip, and I put my, all my clothes inside of those. Two or three of those. Right. And I put them on top of my uh, gear if I have the tripod or the head inside the check-on luggage. So that's, at least that's my reasoning. I'm not, I haven't had a way to verify that if that they can yeah. take the, those be, bags I'd with be, the clothes. I'd be a little bit careful with that because, yeah. you know, you're basically showing people what is in your bag, mm -hmm. right? This is not the security people. Now your bag contents are visible to baggage handlers, to No, I, I mean, those are inside the bag. Oh, inside the yeah. bag. Okay. So I got smaller uh, packs inside the bag, inside the suitcase, okay. uh, separate from the from the gear. Right, So right, if they, right. they want to take everything out, first they have to take out those packs. And they are soft, and you, you can see mostly see-through. So they can mm -hmm. just touch and see there is nothing hard in there. And the mm -hmm. tripod is there outside of those. So if they don't actually open those smaller packs and they need to put it all back together in the, inside the suitcase, then all the clothes are not ruffled up, as you said. At least I like that. I like that very much. That's, and my, I think I that's will, my theory. I'm not sure it works. <laughs> that's my theory. I'm going to use that. I'm going to take that suggestion from you and I'm going to use that the next time. I think it's a brilliant idea. I will probably put a photo on the, on the blog post uh, where we publish this show. Yeah, with a photo of the bags I used there. Oh, that's that's that, that'll be fantastic. And that'll be yes. I actually started using those too uh, because I'm a bit uh, uh, not very how do you say that in English? Not very orderly person. Trying okay. To get everything together, especially when it's uh, it's being used, and I take many many stops along the road, and I have to pack and unpack, and having having everything compartmentalized helps me keep everything in order. I started using that because of that reason, but then I realized that might help with uh, even less problems with security. Right. And you know what's interesting is that you do, I mean, we, we get uh, bags that are kind of similar to that, which are usually meant for, you know, storing your clothes for longer periods of time. Mm -hmm. And they actually have like a, um, a vacuum. Um, yep. if you, if you and you can actually put your vacuum and suck out the air so that it gets compressed. But there are other ones where you can actually roll up and, and remove all the excess air, and it becomes, you know, very convenient to, to pack a lot of things. In fact, they say if you use those bags, you can pack more in a suitcase than you would otherwise. And I, and I completely agree. But thank you for that suggestion. I really like it. Okay, thank you. You're, you're welcome. Um, Another question, and this is a question I ask uh, all of my guests, is uh, sure. you have been to, to a number of foreign countries. But if you were to go back to one of those tomorrow and money or opportunity would not be an issue and somebody would just say, okay, I'm paying you, just you leave tomorrow and go there, where, where would you go? I would go to the Antarctic. Oh. Why? Uh, well, number one, I have never been there. 
I know. <laughs> I was asking <laughs> that that would be my other question, which the place no, but, would you go but, that you have never I, been there? I, I actually misanswered your question. Okay. <laughs> so I would love to go to the Antarctic. Okay. Absolutely. Yes. But if I was to if I was to go somewhere that I really, really want to go back again and again and again. Um, I'll say Iceland. There's, I, I don't think I've explored. I've probably done 10 workshops in Iceland. I'll be doing, I think, my 11th one this year. And I still think that there is another 20, 30, 40 Iceland trips before I'll even say I've seen half of it. So it's just so beautiful. And you can do Iceland literally three times every year and go to the same location and it's different. Yeah. So, yes, it'll be Iceland. As spoken from somebody who was born in India and probably not not born with that adaptability to, to cold climates, that, uh, that says something. Do, do you know something? People yeah, yeah. say Iceland is cold. No. No. Boston is colder than Iceland. <laughs> yeah, Iceland is not as cold. I, Iceland has a lot of wind that makes it feel colder, but temperature-wise, Iceland is not cold. I was in uh, in Norway recently, as I told you. I was in the yeah. northern reaches of Norway, around Tromsø, that, that area, which is at about the seventh uh, parallel north, and it was mm -hmm. actually it was actually quite warm. It was temperatures around zero degrees Celsius or thirty-two Fahrenheit. Right. It's the it's the Gulf Stream, you know, the way yeah. the Gulf Stream flows, it keeps Iceland very comfortable temperature wise. But the winds, they can really, you know, not just make you feel colder, but actually blow you over. Yeah, still not a tropical island. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, you would go back to Iceland and uh, if you uh, new place for you would be Antarctica. Both, that is uh, both cold places. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, I, I love cold places. I love warm places too. I would love personally go back to to, to Africa. I mean, I never. Oh, I've been yeah. to South Africa. I love the wildlife there, uh, mm -hmm. but I would love to go to Botswana and Namibia next. Well, come! I'm going to Botswana and Namibia this year. You got to come along. Please do. Yeah, I would have to convince my wife maybe to either let me go along or come with me and. Uh, well, I don't know, I don't know what's that. easier. I mean, she's she's most welcome to come. Yeah, I know, but she she had her fill with uh, wildlife when we went to South <laughs> okay. Africa. That's what she said. <laughs> I've seen enough lions and elephants uh, in two weeks that we were there. I I don't want to see lions and elephants ever in my life. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding, but yeah. That, well, you're going to have to do some better convincing. Yeah, we have maybe in a couple of years. We'll see. <laughs> Yeah. Have her see a bit more lions and elephants, and maybe zebras, news, those kind of uh, animals. That to, to me, it's uh, I was uh, in awe of the of the wildlife. Just I could have stayed there for for a month and going from drive to drive, but never getting bored of it. Oh yes, you can't get bored. Not not in Africa. Not, and you know Botswana is just so beautiful, so diverse. There's so much opportunity. Uh, you know the 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 delta, the 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 whole area. I mean, everywhere you go, it's different, and and the the animals, it's exceptional. If you get a go to some good camps and get a good 
a good driver uh, and a good guide, they can take you to places that are unbelievable. I mean, I had an experience that was exceptional uh, in 2014 where we found a den of wild dogs and and we went back to that den three times because it just made for some such exceptional, uh, you know, just to watch them and their behavior, uh, the way they, they take care of their pups, the way the, the dominant alpha female, you know, manages the whole pack. It's just amazing. I mean, it's, those are experiences that, you know, you cannot forget for the rest of your life. Yeah, yeah, true. So uh, I think it's time to, to wrap up this conversation. Uh, we are already above our planned time, but I would love to, really love to talk to you for, for much longer. And well, it was a pleasure. Did... I mean, I'm, I'm so glad we, we were able to connect up and, yeah. and do this. I mean, I've, I've really enjoyed it. And as, as I say, you know, it's always fun to, to talk with another fellow photographer and uh, learn something, which I did today. And that's uh, thanks to you. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, yeah, maybe we'll do another episode. We'll, uh, you'll tell us about your uh, most recent trips and um, highlights from them and so on. Sure. But for now, I want to thank you for, for being with us today, for your precious time. If you just want to, to say something to our audience about where they can find more about you online or anything that you would like to add, Please do. Well, I mean, yeah, that, that's, uh, is, uh, you know, I, I do want to thank you too. And it, as I say, was a pleasure. Um, if, you know, all my, all my stuff, whether it be, you know, social media or, or not, it's basically everything can be found right from my website. It's www.shivverma.com. Just remember there are two V's, S-H-I-V-V-E-R-M-A.com. And, uh, you know, message me anytime. Uh, my workshops for 2016 are, I would say, 90% posted, uh, dates, etc. Some more finalizing as far as, you know, pricing is concerned is still uh, in the works. But, uh, you know, feel free to, to write, email, call. I'm, I'm there and available. Um, I also look forward to spending some more time with you, hopefully in 2017, and maybe do a trip together. Very well. Let's hope that we can manage to organize this. It would be really very, very a great pleasure for me to, to meet you. So thanks for, uh, for being with us again and all the best for your next uh, trips uh, and endeavors. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Bye. Bye-bye now.